We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. As you guys know, I am always up for a challenge, which is why when Dorset Cereals challenged me to try breakfast on the slow at least once a week for the next four weeks, I decided to get involved. Dorset Cereals make my absolute favorite range of mueslis and granolas. Their entire range is vegan and high in fiber, and almost all of the mueslis contain no added sugar, so they're the perfect post-walk or post-workout refuel. My personal favorite at the moment is the choc cherry granola, which is absolutely delicious and so moorish. In the lead up to the launch of my app and the world opening up, it feels as though everything has got a little bit busier. And although it's really exciting, I can definitely feel a sense of overwhelm. I love my routine and I truly feel as though the breakfast on the slow challenge couldn't have come at a better time for me. Essentially, Dorset cereals are challenging us to start the day at a slower pace with a yummy breakfast that is worth slowing down for. They believe that we all deserve a calm morning moment and that it can have a positive impact on the rest of the day ahead. And I couldn't agree more. On my rest days, I love a slower paced morning where I can just grab a moment for myself. I sometimes even have a bath, as I'm sure you guys know, and I love that. I'm really excited to incorporate a beautiful, leisurely, delicious breakfast into this routine. You can visit dorsetcereals.co.uk to find out more about breakfast on the slow and discover delicious recipes and tips on how to start the day at a slower pace there. How often do you get to say that you're having a real life gladiator on your podcast? Today, I get to do just that. And I'm so excited to have ex-gladiator, GP, all-round fitness fanatic, and soon-to-be mum, Dr. Zoe Williams, joining me today. Zoe, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for that intro. God, it's crazy, isn't it? Because you said all those different things and the soon-to-be mum is the one that excites me the most. (laughs) Well, that's so nice to hear. And maybe we can talk about that because obviously you've been sharing your pregnancy journey online. How are you feeling right now? How far along are you? Um, So 33 weeks, just had a midwife appointment today and everything, yeah, everything's fine. So feeling pretty good. Good, good. And obviously the last year has been a pretty crazy one. Working in the NHS must have been quite strange and also quite scary at times, I'm guessing. Can you share really how you found the last year and and actually as well then having to be pregnant during a pandemic, which I'm guessing is pretty weird? Yeah, I guess because it's my first pregnancy, I don't have anything to compare it to. And I guess we've kind of got used to living this way. So the pregnancy bit, I haven't found it too bad, actually. In fact, I'm the type of person I always try and find the positives. And I think for me, being pregnant during a pandemic, it means I can come home from work, put my pyjamas on, sit in front of the TV, and know I'm not missing out on anything because everybody else is doing the same. So I've probably found it easier to rest. I've been sleeping nine hours a night, which I've never experienced that probably since I was a child. So in some ways, yeah, I think there is some, in terms of timing, I've tried to take some of the positives out. I guess the negatives are we would have loved to have had a holiday before the baby comes. And I've really missed out on being pregnant is a really kind of big chunk of time where not seeing all of my family and not seeing my, like them not experiencing me and seeing me pregnant and putting their hands on the bump. I'm going to go straight from being 
me to being a mum and they kind of miss out on on the pregnant me but you know it's I don't really I'm not really complaining I think being pregnant during the pandemic for me it's 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 all right it's been okay yeah and then work-wise how did you find it were you still seeing patients I'm guessing you were doing it virtually yeah so most of the GP work has been done virtually we see some patients but in the way that we used to probably do about 80% of consultations in person and 20% online or on on the telephone it's switched around I probably do 90% of my consultations now over the phone or over video call which which you know I I miss it I really miss seeing patients and it's incredible like how much you can do over the phone and it's amazing you know we've all learned new skills and we've learned that utilizing technology there are so many benefits to using technology in healthcare but you'd still do miss out and for some some patients really just it's not ideal for them they don't like it especially older patients or patients where there's already a bit of a language barrier or a communication barrier and I think for patients with mental health as well, they find often they find it quite difficult, particularly people with the more sort of severe mental health conditions. They can find it very difficult to articulate in words and, and you know, that actually being with a patient, you can get so much more. And obviously there are reasons why you've had to do what you do. It's not just, you know, a complete decision to never see patients again. But one of the things that I, I really missed across the last year, just generally not, not even, you know, in a doctor's setting is just that human connection and what we get from that as humans, that we thrive off connecting with each other. And, you know, my day would be filled with just seeing someone on the bus or saying hi to someone at work or, you know, connecting with all of these faces and different people that you'd see in a day. And to go from that to nothing, yeah. you know, it must feel the same for you that suddenly like it's quite soulless having to just sit on the phone all day, you know, working with some quite complex issues. I'm guessing that's quite tough on, on your mental health. It It is. And you're right. It's funny. I was actually chatting to Stuart, my other half. Last week we went and we sat and had a drink outside a bar just around the corner from where we live and this lovely lovely waiter recognized me and said oh Dr Zoe do you want to come and we'll get you a warmer seat because it was a bit chilly and and he was just so lovely so I was really lovely back and I'm like you know what's your name just that you know he really made me happy he brought me joy just by being so nice and then I was able to reciprocate that and I could see he really appreciated me asking his name and finding out a bit and it was Stuart said afterwards like those are the types of interactions that if you're the sort of person like you and I both are you're you know that's how you get your energy that's how you thrive then the past year you know we haven't had that we haven't had just those interactions with people like you say on the street on the bus where just that exchange of positive energy can really give you vitality and and really add so much value to day-to-day life. Mm. You referenced earlier that, you know, there have been a lot of positives that you've taken from this year and a lot of learnings. What would you say were some of your biggest learnings, both personally and professionally, from the past year? I feel like the past year, I've learned so much about myself. Mm. I feel like I've learned so much about other people, like people in general. I feel like I've learned a lot about the world. But I think the biggest learning about myself is that I'm not invincible. And we all have, you know, we all, I think that being vulnerable, I've found, I know we're going to talk about strength, but mm. I've kind of discovered the strength in being vulnerable and and sharing 
what I would have previously called weaknesses, but they're not weaknesses, you know, your vulnerabilities. And I think what I've learned about other people in the world is that I think generally people are really, really good. The bare bones of people are good. And the number of people that we saw volunteering and wanting to help and wanting to have purpose um, in the midst of the first pandemic, when you strip everything away, all the materialism, uh, all the stuff that we place so much value on that we shouldn't, and you strip people back to when we were in the midst of a pandemic and we were all frightened and we didn't know what was going to happen. And when you strip it all back, there are really good people in the world then there are not so good people in the world. And I think that taught me to just trust a little bit more in in people. I've, I've always grown up with a healthy amount of scepticism and suspicion and, you know, it doesn't actually serve me well to be like that. So just, yeah, to give people the benefit of the doubt, because even people who might have been arseholes in the past, like when it really came down to it, everyone just wanted to help. Yeah. It was was dead nice. I Mm -hmm. honestly, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, what I really, like my favourite thing that I noticed was suddenly when I was going on my walks and stuff, people were sort of interacting a little bit more like morning or hi or whatever. And I, I love that. I mean, I come from quite a small town, so we'd always do that. But I really noticed that during the lockdowns and stuff, people were much more like approachable and friendly and you know even though you're not getting close to people like even just a little good morning just goes a long way to making you feel like okay that was nice and I totally I loved what you said then it was so nice I'm going to move on to physical strength first with you Zoe because when it comes to being physically active you've done a lot (laughs) and it seems like you had an interest in it from quite a young age I actually read that you played rugby which I didn't know and then you obviously went on to appear on the hit show gladiators which you were incredible in so how did you initially get into sport and what was it about sport about exercise that you really loved yeah it kind of this I'll I'll tell you the full story and it kind of brings me back to why I'm so passionate about physical activity for young people and also for for my patients so I had quite severe asthma as a child um, so I was under a specialist I was under a pediatrician and it was severe enough that once or twice a year I usually end up in hospital there were one or two occasions when I nearly died. It was it was bad. My paediatrician, I think when I was about seven years old, he was called Dr. Thistlethwaite. I loved him. Part of my inspiration, possibly for being a doctor, he said to my mum, look, you know, did the usual bits, the inhalers, the blah, blah, blah. And he said to my mum, it would be really great for Zoe to get involved in some form of sport or physical activity that she enjoys um, because it's going to really help her with her asthma. It's going to help her be fitter, which is so important, but also it's going to help her with her confidence because I was an incredibly shy child. Like I used to cling to my mum. She said she could do the washing up. There'd be just me and her in the house. And I would like cling onto her like a koala bear. She didn't even have to pick me up. So I was very clingy, lacked confidence, grown up as a mixed race girl in a predominantly white community everyone always wanted to look at me and I hated being looked at um, so he said it's going to really help her bring her out of her shell so mum and I discussed what we would do and, and I decided to join the local dance school and that's what I did and the first time I ever went to a dance competition after 30 seconds I ran off the I ran off the dance floor to hug my mum because I was scared and you know but over the years that I did dancing I really grew in confidence I loved it you know I made a bunch of great really great friends and 
And sadly for, for us, when I was, I think, 11, 10 or 11, this is often the case, I think, with children who grow up in families where, you know, we didn't have much money. Mum was a single parent. She, we survived on benefits. Uh, it got quite expensive. If you get good at something, it gets expensive. There's the costumes and the travel. So we just couldn't afford for me to do it anymore, which was a shame. But I'd been bitten by the bug of sport and physical activity. So I'd grown in confidence. And whatever was offered to me from that day forward from school activities, out of school activities. I always did it, whether I was good at it or not. I'd give it a go and I really enjoyed it. And I genuinely believe that sport and physical activity is what's made me today. It helped my asthma, it helped my confidence, but it also made me competitive and that then translated into my academic. I, you know, I didn't want anyone to beat me academically, so that inspired me to work harder and, and achieve academic success. Um, I didn't go to a school where people become doctors. In fact, when I said I wanted to become a doctor, my teachers said um, I should come up with more realistic ambitions. But, you know, that kind of that competitiveness in me made me think, "Mm, I'll show you. But also people. So, you know, a lot of my closest friends today who I trust and I rely and depend on are, are girls that I've played sport with you mentioned rugby that was I started that at university and I think in my sort of late teen years my sporting friends were the ones that just about managed to keep me on the straight and narrow because I I like to indulge in things I shouldn't I was probably out clubbing much younger than I should have been so (laughs) for a number of reasons I think all of my success I put down to being sporty which is why I'm so passionate about encouraging as many younger girls and women in general to be active and I just wish everyone loved physical activity the way I do but you know of of course not everybody not everybody does I feel very blessed that I actually enjoyed it because not everybody does. I think that's a really good point because definitely like my experience with sport at school was really not a good one. I never took to sport in the way that a lot of my peers did. I was never that good at it. And because I wasn't that good at it, I sort of didn't make any of the teams. I wasn't really engaged in it in a way that I think I could have been if I did things differently now. Like if I went back to my school and I was my teacher, I would completely change the way that sport is run because I think, you know, it can be really limiting for some kids if you're if you're not exceptional at the sport and you sort of don't make the, the the first team or the A team or whatever it is. The impact that then has where you're sort of written off as, oh, well, I'm not good at sports. So I'm not going to do it. Do you know what I mean? And that was what happened to me. And I think what you said, one of the things that I love is the social connection of sport. It's not just about the physical activity. It's so multifaceted in terms of the benefits that it brings. And I think the social aspect of it, particularly for young people, is so important to learn that level of like healthy competition, social interaction, maybe mixing with slightly different people from your school friendship group, for example. I didn't do sport specifically. I actually did the dancing route, which I loved. That was a way for me to be able to to, to learn those skills. And I think you're absolutely right. Like any form of activity you've got to enjoy. And it really is a kind of fundamental that parents don't make their kids do things that they're going to hate because that also fosters a bad relationship with exercise in itself. But if you can find something you enjoy, and like you said, maybe that takes a couple of goes to find what really sticks, the benefits of it are so far beyond just the physical. Absolutely. And I think, you know, sport is an example that actually the majority of girls do not enjoy competitive sport. It's not, you know, boys boys are wired more to to like that and and I've done quite a lot of work in schools I started a a, a 
not-for-profit company called Sports Girls. We're now called Fit for Life and it's changed into something else. But that was around really my passion for trying to ensure as many young girls as possible had a positive experience. So I used to go into schools and talk to groups of girls in year sort of 13, 14 year olds about health in general, sport and physical activity. But one of the things that we would do is we'd actually explore with them, you know, what would it take for them to want to be more active in school and out of school? And then we would kind of like create this document and we would share it with their teachers. And I remember there was a group in a school in Essex and and they said, you know, we, we're so lucky. We've got an incredible state-of-the-art gym in this school, but we don't use it because we don't want to go in there when the boys are there. I'm like, okay, well, what would it take for you to use it? Like, well, they're like, just if the boys weren't there. I'm like, well, how could that work? So, well, maybe one day after school, it could be girls only, and then we'd use it. So, right, right, I was really excited. Like, let's bring in your PE teacher and see what she says. And she was just like, which day? They're like, I don't know, Wednesday. She's like, done. That's so easy. And sometimes it's just about asking young people. The other things they said were, you know, rather than doing traditional PE, for that hour, because they said, you know, we only actually do it for 20 minutes because we get changed and then we need 20 minutes to get our hair straightened and stuff afterwards. And so we only actually do it for 20 minutes. And most of that's the teacher explaining what we're going to do. And then we get one go. They said, we'd rather that they just put up the projector on the wall and we did a Joe Wicks 20 minutes hit workout because we'd all do that, get sweaty and then have time to shower and get ready afterwards. I was like, let's bring in your PE teacher. Let's tell her. Well, you know, it's it's so important that children and young people have a positive experience of physical activity. There's a girl, Kat, who I played rugby with. She was a phenomenal rugby player. She went on to play for the county. I think she played with Mick Bladen, so, you know, played in the premiership. And she said she never did PE at school. She always found an excuse. She always had a note. And she had this awful experience and grew up thinking she wasn't very good at sport. And at university, she tried out with the rugby team, started playing, and she was incredible. And, you know, it's a shame that so many girls have that poor experience. You know, really glad that, you know, you found something, you found dance, and now look at you. But not every girl finds finds that. Yeah, and actually, it's really something that I wanted to talk to you about, definitely, is I know that this is something that you're really passionate about. And one of my questions really centered around how we can help more women and girls to get into sport. I obviously, I know this is something that you cover with Fit for Life and you touched on some of the things that hold women back, but just expanding on some of those topics you talked about, you know, if we look at menstruation, like when women and girls start their periods, that's a big factor that I've spoken to people about that holds people back. And from your perspective, what do you see as being the main limiting factors and, and how really can all of us help more women and girls to be more active and to maybe engage in sport in a more positive way? I think the biggest factor is it's just around social norms. And, you know, you and I, to some extent, we live in a bubble of people who are active, who are interested in being active. And the reality is, actually, the, the majority of women in society, they they don't exercise, they don't take time out to do a class or do a workout or even go for a walk purely for the benefit of exercise for the vast majority of not just women of adults in this country any physical activity they do is because they need to do it to get to work or it's the school run or it's cleaning the house or you know running around after their children the majority of people don't actually have the privilege of exercising of working out 
So I think there are two big shifts that are required that sadly you and I aren't going to make huge impacts on today. But even just talking about them, I think, and raising the issues is really important. The first one is around social norms and the This Girl Can campaign. That was built on a load of research where they compared the UK to a lot of other European countries. And in other European countries, I mean, Holland's the easy example, particularly if you think about Amsterdam, Cycling is just what people do. It's not really a choice. It's not, I choose to cycle. It's just, that's how people get around. It is normal in society to cycle. It's unusual not to cycle. So therefore, as a byproduct of that, most people are getting their 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity. And you can be on a bike wearing a skirt. You can be somebody who, you know, it doesn't matter what size you are or what shape you're, like you cycle. Whereas I think... In this country, it's very much the images that we see portrayed of people who are active tend to look at it. And of course, you know, it's changing. We're seeing we're seeing shifts, which is fantastic. But if you are like just the average typical woman in this country, who's probably somebody, you know, with a BMI between 25 and 30, is norm, that's normal, that's average, and you don't wear lycra, then you don't see yourself represented in sports and physical activity imagery and therefore you don't associate yourself with that so that's one big shift is around social norms and the other big thing is that physical activity in this country is still a privilege actually and we need to change the way people experience physical activity so that it becomes the easier option it requires a lot of changes to infrastructure so if you walk into a, even you or I, if we walk into a busy shopping centre and we want to get to M&S and it's upstairs, there's an escalator right in front of you. And, you know, somewhere there's a set of stairs that you might even prefer to use, but you don't know where they are. You can't find them. You just jump on the escalator because as human beings, we'll usually take the path of least resistance. And if cycling to work is going to be easier and cheaper for you and safe because there are cycle lanes, etc., and that's what people do then people will do it if taking your children to school, if it's a car-free zone, then you're more likely to walk your children to school or then be on a scooter or or whatever. So it's around making the active option the easier, normal, more accessible option. And that requires society to create that environment so that people will do it. Because sadly, for most people, finding time to do exercise on top of their already busy, stressful, difficult lives is just not realistic. And that's especially true when we're talking about the people who will benefit more from being active. So that's people from the lower socioeconomic groups, people from minor ethnicity groups, young women who have young families, and also older people. These are the people that will benefit the most from even just small increases in their physical activity levels. But society needs to change really to to enable that. Yeah, I think you raised some really, really good points there. I, just referencing the This Girl Can campaign, I honestly thought it was one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. And you're absolutely right that you can't be what you can't see. And so for you to engage in sport on a meaningful level and a long-term level as well, I think one of the things that I typically see is a lot of people will dabble with a bit of exercise, but it's never like a long-term thing. It's not seeing exercise as like, 
a separate box. It's like, how can you build that into your day-to-day life in a more purposeful way so that it, it doesn't feel as though you have to go to the gym to do exercise, that we make it much more accessible than that. And I think part of that as well, you, you talked about infrastructure, but I also think it's something that can be so easily catered to by the workplace. You know, it's like, how do you encourage employees to get up for a, a walk in their lunch break or get outside for, you know, a 10 minute walk in the afternoon to counteract that afternoon slump? I think that initiatives that help to promote healthy workforces have shown so much to then boost productivity and, you know, mental health. And I just think those kind of things are also what I'm really interested in. And that goes from, you know, people who are starting out in their first job working on a shop floor somewhere to, you know, big office corporations. I think every establishment can do better. I absolutely agree. And I think people, you know, they should be incentivizing their staff to be more active. Whereas actually it's still, I think in most workplaces, people who are, you know, going out for a run at lunchtime or whatever are still by some people frowned upon a bit. It's like, you know, shouldn't you be working? One of my jobs, I work with the RCGP, the Royal College of GPs. I'm a clinical champion and I champion physical activity and lifestyle. But at one point, I think there were about 30 of us, 30 clinical champions, and we'd all meet at the RCGP building a couple of times a year. And we'd meet in the big boardroom and, you know, the big people there championing cancer or women's health or whatever so we, we'd all meet up and we'd share what work we're doing and support each other and I said you know we should have a portion of the day where we stand and I do these little break sessions where we do some form of physical activity first time I did it people were like you know bearing in mind the majority of the people around this table as well I already stood out most of them were white and male as you can imagine so I, the first time I did it people were like this is really embarrassing what is she doing like this is really weird because it was quite corporate But then the subsequent meeting, the medical director at the RCGP said, Zoe, would you mind doing one of those activities again and getting us to stand? And, you know, after the second time, people started to look forward to it and enjoy it and spoke about how actually it really invigorated everybody and woke everybody up. And we'd all have a little laugh. And I'd always say, right, look at everybody's face and everyone would be smiling in the room. And so you're absolutely right. I think the workplace, you know, traditionally, it starts when we go to school, it starts when you send your children to school. The first day of school is the first day of a child's life that they're expected to sit down all day and not move. And then that is what we do for the rest of our lives. And uh, we need to start undoing that and changing that because it's so bad for us. We'll be back after this. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. And I think you're right. You mentioned this earlier, but you and I do live in a bit of an echo chamber where it feels like everyone exercises and everyone's fit and, you know, is doing something. But actually, if you step outside of that, I actually listened to a really good Guardian podcast the other day that was like, is prolonged periods of sitting down killing us? And it was really interesting, some of the research that they were bringing up about just how inactivity is actually so detrimental to, to, to our physical health. And I think that, you know, you're right. 
I live a very blinkered existence where I sort of tell people they're doing too much exercise and how to like take it back a little bit if they're overtraining. But I think if we step back a bit and look at the wider society that we exist in, absolutely this idea that we spend so long sitting down each day, not encouraged to exercise, frowned upon if we do do some form of movement. I just think those are crucial, crucial things that we need to change in order to make a difference to our overall health as a country. And if this year has shown us anything, it's that our physical health is actually really, really important. Yeah, so important. And I think physical activity got a rebrand Certainly last year in the first wave, when it was the one thing other than shopping for essentials, it was the one thing we were allowed to leave our house for was to exercise. It kind of got a bit of a rebrand for many people from this thing which they know they should be doing, but they never get around to and a bit of a chore to, yeah, what are you going to do for your exercise today? And I know for a lot of medics and the scientific community, you know, real advocates for physical activity, we were loving it. We were like, yeah, everyone's talking about physical activity positively. And it was a real opportunity to engage the government as well. And you know, when Boris Johnson stood there and spoke about the benefits of exercise, we were all like, oh my God, did you see that? Did you see that? And, you know, for, for us, I guess, as doctors and healthcare professionals who are these advocates for physical activity, we're, we're coming at it very much from a health perspective and a lot of people's motivations to exercise are different and it's not usually to reduce their blood pressure or to add years onto their life because they don't think about it in that much depth but for us if every single person in the country did 30 minutes just 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week not per day per week then we would prevent one in six deaths that's the same as if you eliminated smoking it would be the same effect in terms of the number of deaths that you would eliminate. But about a quarter of people do less than 30 minutes per week. That's what we define as physical inactivity. And that is really dangerous. So, you know, when you talk about in your world, you know, you're having conversations about people who are perhaps training excessively to a point that it's detrimental to their health, either physically or mentally. In my world as a GP, we don't experience that. I would plunge and say that definitely less than 1% of people in the real world are doing too much exercise but nearly half are not doing enough just for their health you know this isn't about aesthetics this isn't even about making you feel good and you know enjoyment this is about to be healthy as a human being we we need to move our bodies we're designed to move that stat is shocking i can't believe that now a time when we know that exercise is especially beneficial is during pregnancy which obviously you're going through right now I wondered if I could ask how your training has changed over the last few months how you're adapting obviously we know the research stacks up when it comes to exercising throughout your pregnancy so I wondered if you could talk about what we know when it comes to physical activity during that time and and how you've personally adapted gosh I think it's, it's tricky to keep tabs because my physical activity over the past year with lockdown and everything, it's been up and down. I remember Holly said on this morning one day, she said, lockdown turns you into a chunk, a hunk or a drunk. And uh, <laughs> and I think the first, the first bit, I was definitely a drunk. Then I just got a bit fed up and just, you know, was couldn't be bothered with exercise, was eating what I wanted and perhaps gained a bit of weight. And then towards the end, before... I was pregnant, I'd, I'd started doing CrossFit and was becoming a bit of a hunk. So throughout my pregnancy, it's, it's really changed. The first 12 weeks, I did very little because I was just exhausted. So I, I went for a walk every day. That's what I did the first 12 weeks. I didn't do much apart from that. The occasional workout, if I felt good, 
my second trimester I felt like a superhuman and was like oh my god this is great which makes sense because your blood volumes increased and you're able to provide more oxygen so I was running and lifting weights again but we were in lockdown so just doing what I could do at home do, did some of your workouts which I loved uh, but you know adapted accordingly and just listened to my body there were some days I'd wake up I think I am not exercising at all today I might go for a walk there were other days I'd wake up and think oh god I really need to move I really need to just do something that's gonna make me sweat and a bit out of breath and I'd go for a run and then third trimester, it's, you know, it varies. Like the other week I ended up doing some hill sprints. I went for a walk. I was like, I just want to sprint up that hill. Did three hill sprints. And then the past week, moving house absolutely killed me. So since I moved house two days ago, I've done very little. I did a little workout this morning. I think when you're pregnant, it's about, for somebody like me who loves to train and, and you know, I want to do what I can because it's how I manage my anxiety. It's how I manage my chronic back pain. I keep myself well and healthy through exercising and I love it. So I want to do what I can, but keep it safe. And I've kept it safe by just really listening to my body. I've always been in touch with my body and and understood what, what I need to do. But being pregnant takes it to a whole new level, like the intuition of knowing how much is too much and knowing when movement feels good and knowing actually when to take a rest. It's been quite amazing But I think a lot of women are fearful of exercising in pregnancy. And and this goes back to, you know, decades ago, women were told to rest and put their feet up and conserve energy. But decades ago, we had busy, active lives that required a lot of physical movement. And often, perhaps at certain times, calories were, were scarce, whereas we live in a world now where that's not the case. So All of the evidence says that being active during pregnancy, and that can be a walk every day for 15 minutes, or if you're somebody who's reasonably fit and active, keeping doing what you normally do. All the evidence says that there are a multitude of benefits of being active and there are no risks. It does not increase the risk of miscarriage. It does not increase the risk of preterm birth. And all those misconceptions need ironing out. The World Health Organization, actually, it was just last year, they updated their guidance because it was always a bit unclear as to, but if you're somebody who does quite high intensity exercise or who lifts weights or who does something that is a little bit more than moderate intensity, can you continue? So there was a big review of the evidence in the World Health Organization, made it very clear in their updated review that you can continue doing whatever it is that you do. Just don't push yourself to be getting personal best. Maybe just take the top 10% off your usual performance. But there are three safety precautions. The first one is like, obviously, I can't play rugby. So anything that can bump the bump, so cause trauma to the bump, should be avoided. Anything that is a physiological extreme, so extreme cold, extreme heat, or extreme altitude, or, you know, diving or going up Everest, for example, those things are out. I don't think most people are tackling those in pregnancy. And the third one is after the first trimester, anything that involves you lying flat on your back for prolonged periods. But yeah, the World Health Organization say, apart from that, you know, crack on and do what you're doing, but listen to your body and your body will keep you safe and will guide you. 
Yeah, I definitely think that you're right. There, there is still a lot of fear amongst women who suddenly get pregnant and think, oh my God, can I carry on doing the exercise that I've been doing for ha- however long? And I think it's really good to hear you really championing exercise during pregnancy because I think we need more people doing that. But the other thing that I think happens is this real change in body image during pregnancy. Your body goes through all of these changes. It can be maybe amazing for some women, quite troubling for others, challenging at points, I'm sure. What have you experienced in terms of your own relationship with your body over the last eight months? And no, how long are you? Seven months. <laughs> my, my adding up of weeks is pretty terrible. Yeah, you could. Um, it's seven months. <laughs> seven months and how have you learned to manage that and the sad thing that I tend to see is women who are very very soon post-birth trying to then in in inverted commas lose the baby weight how do you feel about that and have you got any advice for anyone that's in that situation yeah I think I think we need to completely ban the term bounce back because I think that is psychologically so damaging we're all different and personally my experience of the changes of my body I've just been in absolute awe of my body I I can't believe can't believe it like I'm a doctor so I know the science I know what changes (laughs) you go through in pregnancy but sometimes I just stand them and look at myself in the mirror and think oh my god like it's amazing it's incredible so I've had that really positive experience of observing my body change and that's kind of passed on into my views around how I want to give birth I started off wanting an elective c-section now I'm considering a home birth and just because I've this confidence in my body has grown like I can't believe how incredible my body is it's grown a human being so therefore in the way that I previously thought the safest way I think to give birth is to have an elective C-section or controlled. And I'll think, well, if my body can do this, then my body's probably highly likely to be capable of of birthing as well. But, you know, some people it's it's difficult, it's challenging. And I I know that the bit that's really challenging is the body that you have after you've given birth. Like everyone admires a bump. A bump's a really beautiful thing to most people. People are fascinated by it. But once you give birth, that's when people, women in particular, I think they scrutinise their bodies because you've got this new body all of a sudden, practically overnight, which isn't the same as the one before you were pregnant. It's not that wonderful marvel that it was during the pregnancy. And then I think there is a lot of pressure on women I think a lot of it is women put pressure on themselves but from their peers and certainly from platforms like Instagram which I think there's there's a real championing of people shouldn't have expectations to bounce back but we all compare ourselves as much as we try not to it's impossible to not compare ourselves and we see those examples of women who for whatever genetically probably have just their bodies have returned exactly to how they were And that's what we expect or what we want to happen. And we also see on Instagram the examples of women who are brave enough to share when when that doesn't occur. My own plan after after giving birth, for the first six weeks at least, I've written an article, I do a weekly column in Fabulous Magazine. So I've just written an article on this. And the lady who kind of interviews me for me to get the content for my article we were talking about what's your plan been for exercise throughout your pregnancy and blah, blah, blah. And she said, and what about afterwards? I was like, oh, afterwards. And I realised I haven't even thought about it. For that immediate time after giving birth, exercise is just it's just not on my priority list. I can get out for a walk every day, not because of the exercise or because of 
my body, but actually just for the other benefits. I think one of my aims will be to get out of the house for a walk every day. And if I can do that and nourish my baby and survive, then I think I'm not setting too many expectations for myself. I think a year after giving birth, I would hope that I'm sort of back into an exercise regime. But that's not about what my body looks like. That's about because exercise is so important for me, it's what keeps me well. So I think especially as well from an identity perspective, when exercise is part of who you are, you know, that you want to get back to a level of that as well. And and also from a mental health perspective, you know, postpartum de- depression is obviously really common. And I guess exercise would play a part in that as well. One in 10 people suffer postpartum depression. And yeah, of course, exercise is one of the, it's one of the best things that you can do for that. But also it's going to help you sleep better when you do get the opportunity to sleep all the healthy hormones and chemicals that are released in your body when you exercise. So yeah, it's definitely something that people should try and incorporate, but trying to get your body back in shape really shouldn't be the focus because there are bigger things to focus on in that period of life. And you touched on social media and it's really something that I wanted to cover with you from a health perspective because I'm guessing that mental health has been something that you've seen a lot of in your clinic this year. Helping people with their mental health probably makes up a big part of your role now, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. How have you had to change and adapt the way you practice to really support those people? You know, you mentioned earlier that it's hard when people have complex mental health conditions to, to deal with that you know, virtually over the phone. How have you really had to help people? I think this past year, we've, it's been, yeah, it's, it, we've had to find new ways of, of supporting people. So new ways of having those conversations over the phone. And also, especially in the first lockdown, when people were very restricted as to how they could manage their mental health, because a lot of the things that they might normally do to help, they just couldn't do. They were confined to their own homes. And and just to paint a bit of a picture, so I work in quite a deprived area of London and, and some of the pressures and stresses that people have in their day-to-day life, such as it might be that you're a, a family of six living in a one-bedroom or two-bedroom flat and you've got mould on the walls and one of your children has asthma that's exacerbated by the mould. So you're constantly trying to be in touch with the council to get rehoused because it's inappropriate housing. And you've got financial difficulties to the extent that you genuinely do not know how you're going to feed your children the following week and your husband might live in a different country and you can't contact them at the moment because we're in a pandemic and the phone lines are down in Africa or whatever. So these are the kinds of stresses that people deal with. And then we talk about their mental health and, you know, the types of things that you and I might do, like headspace or doing some exercise or having a nice bath with some candles. Like that's just not accessible or realistic to them. So it can be incredibly difficult. And I'll always remember when I was a GP trainee and my tutor said that he remembers when he was a trainee and he saw this patient and he was just left feeling entirely helpless because he saw this patient who painted a picture of their life and they had a really distressing, difficult life. And he was like, I literally do not know what to say. I don't know how to help this person. Like, I am powerless. I cannot make their life any better. And no amount of meditation is going to help them. And he said a month later, the patient sent him a thank you card. And he was like, why are you thanking me? I, I didn't do anything. And the patient said, because you listened, you really listened and you took on board and that really helped this person so much. So I think a lot of what I've done in the pandemic, particularly with people who have difficult lives, is I've just listened to them and just given them my time and then I've gone on to recommend things like Headspace and, <laughs> and Calm app, <laughs> a little bit of meditation, yeah. knowing that realistically, you know, their life is so complex. 
that's never going to reach the top of their priority list. They won't get to it, but shared those resources and signposted to, of course, the, the, you know, the NHS talking therapies and loads of websites and other resources that we have available to us. But you know, part of my job as a GP, like a really important part of my job that I mustn't underestimate is just the power of, of really listening to somebody and, and feeling just for that moment what what they feel and also the power to them as well you know if you are someone who's living the life that you described earlier having 10 minutes to just talk to someone about your problems when you're probably trying your hardest to to solve everyone else's is actually probably quite helpful in itself yeah absolutely I I remember we're not meant to have favorite patients but the practice I used to work (laughs) at I did have a favorite patient and I used to see this lady once a month and um and she always had a double appointment and she'd always come because she'd have two small problems and it'd be something minor like, you know, she cut a finger or you know, a toenail was a bit sore. Or There'd be very minor things that she'd book the appointment for. And this was our understanding. And we would talk for about 15 minutes about what was going on. She had some mental health problems. She had a mild learning difficulty and she was having issues at work with bullying and what have you. So we would talk about her for about 50 and she'd always cry and she'd let it out. And then she'd keep an eye on the clock and with five minutes to go, she'd wipe her tears and she'd be like, right, now, Dr. Williams, how are you and how are you getting on? And, you you know, you're a person too and don't let the patient ever. And that that was part of her treatment, you know, seeing me for that 20 minutes on the odd occasion, that was her medicine. That's what kept her well and that's how she coped. And all I did really was listen and be sympathetic and be nice to her and then let her be concerned about me as well, which was lovely, actually. That sounds so nice. Oh, my God, what a sweetheart. Obviously, you sound like the world's most, most amazing GP, and I think everyone listening probably wants to come to you as their doctor. But for those that might not have had such a positive experience when it comes to speaking to their GP about their mental health, do you have any advice for them? You know, I always hear from people who are like, you know, I went to my GP, but I didn't really get anywhere with it. Like what advice do you have for people that are struggling but just aren't quite sure where to turn? Go again. Always go again. It, it you know, it, it, it I, I kind of, I, can, I guess I can see it from both sides. I think there are a lot, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the consultation generally, the GP consultation. There's also a lot of satisfaction as well. But I think sometimes, you just said there, I sound like the most amazing GP. I have bad days. I have times when a patient leaves my room or I leave that phone call and I think, oh, I'm not happy with that. I could have done better or I, I, I'm not sure I really got to the crux of the problem. I'm not sure I really understood or, you know, patients sometimes get angry with me and we don't see eye to eye. So there's there's no perfect GP and, and you know, mo- I think most of my patients I have quite a good relationship with, but there are some patients, a small handful of patients who said, I don't want to ever see that doctor again. So we're, at the end of the day, we are human beings we sometimes have a bad day we sometimes you know lose concentration for a second and we miss that really important cue that you gave us and and also sometimes you perhaps people give us credit for being more knowledgeable than we actually are we don't know the ins and outs about every topic like I've been talking a lot about diastasis recti, like tummy gaps after having a baby recently because I'm pregnant. But it's actually something that I didn't know that much about, if I'm honest, beforehand. I knew it existed. I need to check for it, but I didn't know much about it. But what I do know as a GP is where to find information about it, how to refer you, how to signpost you. So I think if somebody has an experience with their GP that is for any reason, unsatisfactory, whether that's around a mental health issue, 
physical health issue. You don't feel like the doctor's taking you seriously. They don't feel like they've listened. Just book another appointment. If you feel more comfortable, book another appointment with a different GP. Book an appointment with a practice nurse sometimes. And don't be afraid to let us know. You know, come come in and just say, oh, you know, I, I booked this appointment. I did actually speak to a doctor about it last time, but I just didn't feel happy with how it went for this reason or that reason. And that means we're that, okay, got you. This happens. We know it happens. We've got, we're on high alert. You know, you've got our concentration 100%. I'm going to really try and listen to you. So always go back because, yeah, we're not perfect. That's such good advice, Zoe, and definitely something that I think a lot of people will find helpful. I did say that I wanted to talk about social media because I think that plays such a huge part in our well-being right now, especially over the last year when we've all spent so much time online. My screen time on my phone is appalling and I don't even want to look at it. But um, <laughs> Our relationships with social media are complex. And whilst there are amazing parts of social media, and I wouldn't have met you had it not been for it, <laughs> there are also really triggering spaces and play and you know, a lot of people find it quite a, a difficult space to exist in at the same time as having this almost weird addiction with it. When it comes to social media, what advice do you give in terms of how to have a healthy relationship with it? And really, how do you use it as well for yourself in terms of best practices to keep yourself mentally well and, you know, having a positive relationship with it? I, th- I think a lot of it for me personally, I'll start with that, is around occasionally just allowing myself to reflect on how it makes me feel. Because I always share with somebody who suffers with anxiety and there'll be times that I'll be scrolling and I can feel like the palpitations in my chest. I can feel the anxiety and I think, what am I doing? Why am I subjecting myself to something that is making me feel unwell? So I think regularly checking in and reflecting, but also actually as Dr. Linda Papadopoulos, who I've worked with a couple of times recently, who's a psychologist, I did a podcast with her and she shared some really great advice around, we all have, you know, social media is something that we all use. It's not going anywhere brings us so much joy, but it can also bring us so much distress. So therefore, so it's around curating your feed. And I once did a small experiment for a TV program I used to make called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. And the outcome of that was it's social media in general. Things like babies and animals tend to make people feel good. Things like seeing other people on holiday or seeing people looking fabulous on exquisite nights out tend to make people feel bad. So we all have, we do all have the opportunity to just have a think about what makes you feel good, who makes you feel good, and what doesn't make you feel so good. And don't be afraid to just trim down your feed to the things that make you feel good. And also assessing what time of day, if you're scrolling and scrolling before you go to bed, it's probably not a healthy thing to do. And the other thing Linda said was, we tend to post when we feel good and we scroll when we don't feel so good. So if you're on there scrolling around looking at other people the majority of the time and not posting, then that might be an indication that social media is is not so healthy for you. Whereas if you're somebody who posts often and you don't scroll that much, you output more than input, then that might be an indication that it is. But I think it's a really tricky one and it's something that we've still got a lot to learn about. And again, everybody's experience of it will be different, but taking time to reflect and just think about what, what in, even what physical, what's happening physically in your body, if your shoulders are tight and your jaws clenched, that's not good. I think that's really good advice. And I think you're right. It is really about 
being able to check in with where you're at because I think there are days when I use it and I love it and I'm like, oh, this is so good. I love seeing what my friends are doing. And there are days when I can absolutely recognize that it is not having a positive impact on my mental well-being and and it is just about being really intuitive about when to step away moving forward zoe what have the next obviously apart from having a baby what have the next few months <laughs> and the year got lying ahead for you for you have you got anything exciting coming up is there anything you're working on oh gosh this changes every few weeks but I've kind of figured that for my I, I know this is ambitious and new mums out there will laugh their heads off but I'm, I'm thinking about trying to utilise some of the time when I'm on maternity leave to think about getting my my bumming gear with with these books that I've kind of got half written and do some writing. But we will see. But do you know what? I'm not putting too much pressure on myself because I think I've reached a stage in my life where I look at my career and where I've got to and I'm actually quite, I've always been ambitious and always thinking, what's next? And I've reached a stage in my life where I think, do you know what? From a career perspective, I'm quite happy to coast where I am for the next couple of years and really focus on my personal life. And, you know, I just can't wait to be a mum. It's something I've wanted for so long that I don't want my work and my career to in any way negatively impact on that. So I'm kind of, you know, everything will keep ticking over, but I'm also excited as to what opportunities will come up that incorporate the baby and start doing perhaps slightly less medical stuff and a bit more mummy based stuff. I love that. And I'm so excited for you, Zoe. I really am. I know how much you've wanted it. So it's just so lovely to see you. Yeah. At this stage of your life. So I'm looking forward to seeing all of the photos when it arrives. Do you know what you're having yet? No, no. Still <gasps> surprise. Because Ho- Holly guessed, right? Holly guessed. So Holly Willoughby apparently gets it right every time. So I was in the studio yesterday and she's guessed, but I'm not going to say what she guessed because she's so (laughs) likely to be right. But I still want to keep it a surprise for everybody. But she literally, she stood about two metres away from me. She said, can I just touch you once? I know we're not meant to touch each other. She literally brushed the side of my tummy for a millisecond and then told me what she thought and she was certain about it. I love it. I love it. Well, I am so excited to see all of your updates when it happens. I'm wishing you all the best with it. And I just want to say thank you for your time today because honestly, like you, I love you, Zoe, and I always have, and I I love following you. But I think your voice, the way you talk and your voice just is the most amazing voice of like calm and reason. So thank you so much. you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i have a little request for you all if it's not too much to ask it really really helps if you rate review and subscribe to the podcast as it means that others can find it and hopefully gain from it too we have a new episode dropping every week so stay tuned and thanks for listening Thanks so much to the delicious and brilliant Dorset Cereals for sponsoring this episode of Give Me Strength. Visit www.dorsetcereals.co.uk to find out more about Breakfast on the Slow, discover delicious recipes and find tips on how to start the day at a slower pace.